Hey. Hello, hello. Comrade Nana, bro, finally joins us. Right, so today's a today's a super 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 special episode. It's uh it's it's probably going to be my favorite episode. Uh it's uh it's going to be our uh, it's going to be about Marxism, but specifically Marxism. Uh communism as a whole is a big ass topic, but uh today we're specifically going to talk about Marxism uh uh from from what Karl Marx envisioned at the start. Um, it's it's evolved way beyond that since uh, since his theory, but we're just specifically going to talk about Marxism today. Yeah, so we are. It's like some specific areas of Marxism as well, and concepts such as um, to name but a few: dialectical and historical materialism, and uh, the labor theory of value. Yeah, uh, it's it's going to be very very simplified and short. Uh, sh- uh, short examples and uh, uh, explanation, but you know, I, I I don't anticipate everybody who's going to be uh, watching this or sorry, listening to this, they're not really going to have the biggest understanding of what we're talking about. So bear with us. Yeah. So I think first thing to start with, uh, we should introduce why and how we became Marxist. Yeah. Um, so I suppose for me that process of becoming a Marxist really happened when I saw what was going on in Kashmir around this time last year actually when martial law was declared prior to that I didn't really have any sort of interest in politics as a whole I understood what was going on in terms of what left right meant mm. and that there was a Labour Party and a Conservative Party in the UK but I used to like equate them as being both one and the same. So I was apathetic when it came to politics. It really wasn't my cup of tea. Didn't really care what was going on. Even though looking back, it's kind of silly because politics unfortunately shapes our lives so much in mm. such a massive way. And obviously prior to you know, me becoming a Marxist, I was, to say the least, had very questionable views. Uh, I used to watch a lot of outright dudes on YouTube, mm. like these very, very, very staunchly right-wing conservative dudes, like Steve Pratt, and I would just internalize a lot of what they were saying and think, "Wow, these dudes are so, so intelligent, so mm. you know, so spoken." And you know, but my first like introduction to Marx as an individual, it came during my A levels when I studied sociology and I learned what Marxism was, but that was touched only in the minutest of details. But still, just learning about Marxism then, that interest never really dissipated because of the, the stuff that he was talking about. Mm. It was really quite interesting. And one day when I was at university, just finished a lecture, I mm. went to Blackwell shop and saw the Communist Manifesto. Mm. And prior to that, I had a very, it's very strange preconceived conception of what communism was. Mm. I just thought it was a perverse authoritarian ideology, mm. the equivalent of fascism. Yeah. And I was one of the dudes on Reddit that would be like, haha, communism, no food. Even though the CIA, for fuck's sakes, reported that people in the Soviet Union on average consume more calories than America. But yeah, apparently in communism, there's no food. Mm. I read the book, The Communist Manifesto. And uh, I'm gonna be honest, I did not understand what the fuck he was talking about. Like I, I read it and I, I saw all these concepts. And this is the thing about Marxism: it, it seems 
really difficult to grasp because the language that's used people might find it difficult to tackle with but when you really understand the core principles of what Marx is talking about and also relating it to contemporary society and understanding that little to anything has changed other than the exception of globalization way in which capital has exported abroad and moved to other places mm. you realize that what Marx is saying can still relate to what's happening right now and it's very important that you know we read Marx's work in fact I'd go on to say that Marx has never been important uh, you know ever at such a given moment in time mm. you know and after reading the manifesto I went through other material particularly Dr Richard Wolff's Democracy at Work and through that continuation and then eventually the the that period of me becoming further politicized coincided with the fascists in India subjugating the Kashmiri people. Wait, can I can I interrupt? I, can I interrupt? Yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh when you read the manifesto, uh, you you said you fully didn't understand it. What made you hmm. like what made you want to pursue, you know, Marxism more when you didn't understand the manifesto? Partly because that interest never really dissipated. That interest I developed somewhat to an extent. uh when learning about marxism in sociology because mm. he spoke oh the the way he would speak and the way he would articulate his points you know really it was it was in a really profound way okay. and it really it really made a lot of sense then but i never really quite understood how or why it was making sense mm. so that interest then was you know carried over and then wanted to understand it more and more because i always thought okay capitalism isn't great but it's the best system we have right and he yeah. more like marx appear and yeah. like just dis- dismantle that position and advocate that we can and should do better for capitalism that led me to pursue this interest further so i thought you know what i'll entertain the idea because just because i heard marx saying what he said doesn't mean i immediately jumped ship it took me a while to become a full-fledged marxist that i am now mm. and what further you know you know sorry just to continue what further dwelled me to that into marxism per se was during that period of uh, fascists in india mm. going in and initiating essentially martial rule in kashmir and then i understood what imperialism was how that was tied to capitalism that process continued and here i am now a marxist so was it was it all a uh, so Uh, when 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 did this start again uh, i'm sorry so this process really began just one day really i went to blackwell's bookshop it's a bookshop at my university and i decided to pick up the communist manifesto for no like i didn't know why as well because like i said i had this initially i thought i was going to read it and just you know read it for a laugh and a bit of a joke because like mm. what communism like that terrible system that's never worked and has just ended in death and misery Yeah. So I got it for a joke. I mean, there's other instances as well where I bought like communist related products purely for just like just to take the piss like a poster, Stalin, Mao, Lenin, uh, I Mark. I seen that. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't even a communist then. But over time that poster became really important to me. Just just kind of funny how life works I suppose in that way. So, so you're you're a new Marxist essentially. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Said, yeah. 
Oh, jeez, bro. When I talk to you, it feels like you've been a Marxist forever. The amount of info you know, to be honest. Yeah, like, it's it's insane. It is insane when I tell people I've only been a Marxist for... I wouldn't even say a year. It's only been a few months. Like, that, really, where I've, I've done it, like, committed to the cause of Marxism. And, um, yeah, that's, 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 that's my journey, really. To be honest, oh, you, you take that Sorry, it's just uh, what I saw was happening in Kashmir, and understanding how that is related to capitalism, that that like imperialism, in a way we we can call it imperialism, but not just the, the imperialism that's associated with what was going on, but more so the ideology of the current party in India, the BJP, their fascistic party, and understanding how fascism is intimately tied to capitalism really pushed me further to the left and eventually uh, to become a Marxist. You're even more to the left of Marx in a weird way. You're, you're, <laughs> you're a super radical commie sometimes when I talk to you. Yeah. 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 And it's funny as well just thinking about that process because not, not even that a year ago I was just getting my feet wet in terms of political discourse. So people might get the impression because you know, I have friends that say, wow, no, no, you're a very articulate, sophisticated dude. You speak really eloquently. And I appreciate all compliments that come my way, but... Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, like, prior to that, it's crazy to me to grasp as well because I just wasn't that interested in politics, really. Mm. Like, a lot of people, if I asked them, uh, you know, a lot of British comrades, they'd say, oh, did Brexit politicise you? And I'd be like, no. And they'd be like, what did then? And then I'd be like, oh, it was Modi just invading Kashmir. And they'd just be like, ah, oh, shit, okay. Okay. I mean, they know who Modi is? Like, uh, the people who ask you? Yeah, yeah. they know who Narendra Modi is. Okay. Um, I mean, yours is kind of super different from my one. Mm. To be honest, I think you know my story, but to like, you know, for for people who don't, it's mostly because of my brother. He was a he was a bit of a Stalinist. He was a bit of a yeah. He's he's a you know he he loved Stalin. He loved communism. When I was super young, I think I was like ten. You know, he introduced me to the concept, but like I was ten, man. I didn't I didn't fully know what the heck this was about. He's just like, hey, this is the better system. You know, capitalism is a bit trash. You know, communism is the better system, but. You know, I didn't, I didn't fully know what it was, but you know that, like, you know, being exposed to it at such a young age, you know, made me wanna, you, you know, stare, like, find out more, or like, you know, it was, it was sort of a counterculture thing where, you know, I didn't, I didn't fully fit in, fit into the system or fu- fully understand capitalism, so I sort of wanted to uh, study Marxism more, and I didn't really, I didn't really start until. Um, until uni actually prior to that i was a bit of an edgy kid uh you know like you said uh, i would watch you know these old right youtubers like you did like sargon actually mm-hmm. i was worse than you, man at least mm-hmm. crowd is like soft old right i watched sargon back in the day but you know uh coming into uni made me study a bit more because you're exposed to these things in uni you know talking to my boy uh i'm not i'm not sure if you want his name out there but my boy al you know, he uh, he he made me. You know, he opened my eyes a bit more. He made me read it a bit more. And then talking to you, actually, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, definitely talking to you made me want to. You know, made me do my reading way more because before that, I'd only read Capital and uh, the Manifesto. But now, you know, now I've read way more. 
now I'm way more learned. I'm way more well versed in Marxism. But yeah, it's crazy how different our stories are when it comes to uh, being radicalized towards communism. Yeah, yeah, I didn't really have that political element within my family. They were left leaning, but you know, definitely. But they didn't really, you know, and I appreciate it as well. I can see why they didn't really go out of their way to impose their own beliefs onto me. So that process mm. of me becoming politicized was my own journey, really. And it was a journey that, looking back, I never thought it would lead me to where I am now. But it's crazy, I suppose. You know, just reading that one book opened up a treasure trove of other stuff. Like the comment from reading that, I, you know, began studying settler colonialism, U.S. imperialism, all topics for future episodes. But Marxism, you know, it does that. You know, it, what's the best thing about it is it's a science. You know, it's constantly changing. And how they, you know, the, those that read the theory, how they applied it in revolutions, they did so under the unique material conditions present within their own nation states. And that, like, lack of dogmatism when it comes to Marxism, the fact that it's, like I said, a, sci- a science that just constantly evolves and has constantly changed. And since the Communist Manifesto it was mm. you know, published, a wealth of Marxist texts have just opened up. And they're really good <laughs> really really good yeah this this episode is not gonna be like yeah people don't know how big communism is mm. like uh yeah people aren't educated on it so this sort it's of thing is manifest huge they need. i mean there's a massive yeah. diaspora in like africa for example um mm. the great walter rodney he made an entire book uh talking about africa's underdevelopment by europe and how that mm. process of underdevelopment is tied to capitalism amazing book one of the best books i've read this year i might need to check that out man uh yeah there's 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 so many different types of marxists out there but people are very much aware of you know you know marxist leninism marxist leninist maoist trotskyism Mm. uh, luxembourgism you know there's there's so many different iterations of what marxism became after Karl marx's death but people kind of just only stick to the manifesto and it's yeah. a bit yeah, yeah the manifesto is what i just want to i just want to emphasize is a polemic like it's something that would be read in like in like a rally almost it's not like just the one text and that's it you know it's a political pamphlet yeah yeah it's not, yeah capital is his actual like body of work that we sort of you know quote and study more exactly yeah but today's episode is mostly going to be about Marxism because like we said, like we could do a whole episode on Leninism. We could do a whole episode on Mao, actually, and we probably will. But, you know, you know, even Marx, even this episode probably not going to be enough to cover, you know, everything Marx has said. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, t- today we're just going to go over two or three core cool topics, the core cool tenets of what Marxism is, um, you know, that sort of uh, shape the entire Marxist theory. So, you know, today is going to be labor theory of value, uh, dialectical and, uh, sorry, historical, historical and dialectical materialism. And um, what else? Just sort of the life of Karl Marx, actually. Yeah. And I'm going to put that one to you. An understanding of the concepts as well, like what's meant by alienation, how workers are exploited. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like these are like extremely important things to cover, primarily because I feel particularly with myself here as an example, when I read the work, I looked at it and I didn't, I, I was confused as to how such a process can arrive, like what workers are exploited. 
Yeah. Even yeah. though it's like blatantly obvious they are. I mean, just look what look at a, a factory in Bangladesh where they make clothes for Primark, for example. If that is an mm. exploitation, I don't know what is. People get put off when you use uh, words like exploitation. Like mm. that's a bit of a word. I've seen people get uncomfortable with you know me using that certain word like exploitation. They're yeah. Like, How are we to call it that? Yeah, like because people wouldn't conceive that term being applied to the workplace, you know. But understanding I mean, how they are genuinely exploited was mm. an important first step in me actually understanding Marxism and then furthermore going becoming politicized, you know. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people are scared of like what they don't know really. And especially in this, like you know, anti-Marxist propaganda that's been propagated by the entirety of Western media, you know, of course people are going to be a bit put off when you use like exploitation and yeah, yeah, it's it, it generally stems from ignorance and you know, yeah, we are very much still living through the McCarthyite era, especially to comrades that are in the U.S. You know, so a, a, a new di- New Deal, sorry, style liberal like Bernie Sanders was perceived as a radical leftist bruh <laughs> a radical leftist man. <laughs> how far the Overton window shifted to the right in America like they're starting to make Nazi Germany look moderate over there uh, anyway uh-huh. on that note would you like to begin and you know explaining to our audience what's meant by the labor uh-huh. theory of value Actually, I wanted you to start uh, on uh, on Marx. Actually, I think it's important oh, okay, to know yeah. who Marx is. Yeah, actually, that would be better. Uh, so, Karl Marx, as you may imagine, with the name Marxism, his theories and ideas are what shapes the school of thought known as Marxism. Uh, he was born in 1818 in Germany, and his doctoral dissertation was in ancient Greek philosophy, and. You know that sounds random why i just randomly you know brought it up but it's important to understand because he was a student of hegel who in his own right was his own philosopher uh, philosopher yes mm. and hegel developed this concept that's known as dialectics and marx took it further you know as i'm going to explain later but this is specifically a marx marx took that term dialectics further and helped to develop his own iteration of what is meant by it by applying it within a capitalist society and his process of becoming politicized was this seeing the huge disparities in wealth inequality that existed in Germany. Mm-hmm. And because he was such a radical and spoke all these things, spoke about these things, um, eventually he became stateless where he lived for the remain you know, the duration of his life in London. But his work and the stuff that he's spoken about, you know, the the work that he's produced and the things that he said are very much still important in our society today. Why, why did he become stateless, though? Oh, because, like, sorry, just to expand, sorry, it's because of what he wrote. Like, he was fundamentally challenging the status quo, the present status quo, as he would today, because under then, mm. capitalism as a system was how society was organized as it is now. But it was still in its baby steps, you know what I mean? It was just going through that process of industrialization. It hadn't really began to globalize and export as much as it has now. It was starting to, through colonialism, through that expropriation and expansion into the global south. But that this, this aspect of uh, Marx becoming stateless was due to the fact of that he was challenging the status quo. And unfortunately, the state 
which I will later explain in, a, in another episode, of, probably under Lenin. As we mm. know, is under the control of the ruling class, like as an institution, and they didn't like what Marx was talking about, as you'd imagine. Okay, that's why. He, okay, yeah. So he he became stateless, and uh, I think he went to the UK next. Yeah, right? he went or to was the it... UK. He went to the UK, and that's where he spent the duration of his life. He's actually buried in the UK, I believe, in London somewhere. I'm not entirely sure where, but I only became conscious of that due to the you know the the present arguments that were propping up surrounding uh, people on the right saying why why don't we definitely you know decrease the statue but this but first of all it isn't a statue it's, it's literally the grave of someone and secondly Karl Marx didn't own any fucking slaves so yeah uh, bro we gotta do a pilgrimage day one day man but uh inshallah <laughs> but uh <laughs> inshallah bro but uh so so uh, he 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 uh, didn't he write the manifesto in London, by the way. I believe so. Yeah, yeah, he did. Because uh, that's when he's you know, I, I, he met his uh, his collaborator and good friend Friedrich Engels in Germany, but they both were in London when they wrote the manifesto. Engels in Manchester, but uh, Marx in uh, in London. Yeah. But what 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 led him to write the the manifesto? Why, why would oh, he write? You know, oh, why did he write? When prior to the writing of the manifesto, he saw two things. First of all, was the 1848 revolution. So these were a series of revolutions that were popping up around Europe. To give an, a good example of it, and to to understand it further within our modern context, do you, you remember the Arab Spring, where there were like a series of revolutions across the Arab world, from Tunisia to Egypt? A similar process was occurring across Europe. Uh, the formation of any kind of recognizable nation states wasn't really forming with the exception of the united kingdom but right. there were a series of revolutions and they were all across europe from italy to austria hungary to france and marx saw that and that wasn't really the fir- like he saw that process occur and it didn't mm. really have intrinsically an anti-capitalist tendency within those revolutions they were just a series of revolutions where people are rising up but what, what really pushed him to write the manifesto was when he saw the Paris Commune. And the Paris Ooh. Commune was particularly interesting because what happened there, you could see reflected in a lot of the ideas of what Marx wrote. So the idea of the state not existing mm. and workers being able to manage and direct their own lives at the workplace, even though it existed for a short while period, Marx was inspired by what he saw in the Paris Commune and that in itself led to the process where he would eventually write the manifesto. I mean, how how bad were working conditions at the time that he oh, had to write? Oh, yeah, it was horrific. Like, child labour was used and it was normalised. Yeah. There was no such thing as the eight-hour workday or, like, workers being unionised and being able to have some form of bargaining power and having rights at the workplace as well, like the workplace was very much uh, terrible in terms of its conditions. Like Friedrich Engels, Marx's co-collaborator, spoke of it quite candidly in his book, The Condition of the Working Class in Manchester. Mm. What he described was just extreme poverty and how the worker was 
exploit on a level that would be akin to what we see in the global south. And this is happening in the global north, mind you. I mean, I mean, we've seen, I mean, you say that, but we've seen instances like, you know, me and you, like with our own eyes, you've seen not that bad, but we've, we've seen instances of that with some of our friends. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. are. Not to the extent that we would like compare it to what we were seeing in the industrial revolution, but exploitation is exploitation, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. It may have evolved, but it doesn't eliminate that element. No, no. And uh, it's funny that, you know, angles of all people would write on the conditions of the working class, considering he was bourgeois himself. Yeah, he owned a factory. Yeah, he was a pretty rich dude. And even he was like pretty horrified at, you know, the conditions that working class people sort of faced in in his factory. Yeah. Which is remarkable to the testament of his character for my ad, because he had every discernible privilege yeah he you know he went out of his way to say we should go beyond the present state of things and establish a new social order which is yeah yeah remarkable to say the least i mean even us to a degree as i we're not exactly that well off but, no you know we're not yeah we're not you know we're not people like you know in the south who yeah don't really have you know, even a roof to their heads, you know, no, we're a lot no. better off. You know, we have a lot of compassion and, you know, we, we care about, you know, people in general, laborers, workers in general, who we do suffer under the beat of capitalism. Yeah. You know, we genuinely care. It's not, it's not, it's not self-saving, you know, uh, it's not something we just only like want to benefit us, you know, it's for everybody. Yeah, this isn't some kind of self-serving platitude where we're just trying to give ourselves a pat on the back. For having basic consideration for others but this no, more no. to do so with like angle specifically because that really is quite remarkable it's yeah. up there in terms of social class you know yeah i was gonna say like uh, especially marxism's made me you know think more about uh, it's made me think more about collectivism about mm. you know caring for the community caring for you know just poor people in general, you know, uh, it's such a, you know, you realize how disgusting of a system capitalism is, you yeah. know, when, you know, when you see how certain people's reaction to like homeless people or mm. poor people. Yeah, know, like I've, this, I've seen this that. normalization of homelessness and like this rationalization of the impoverishment. Like they're, you know, they're, they're poor because they're lazy. They didn't work hard enough. Like it's truly, truly disgusting. And if I, I just want to add as well, like how toxic individualism is as an ideology. You know, why should I care about yeah. this person? You know, this this person's kid not not you know missing a meal. Like this lack of empathy and basic consideration for others is just profoundly grotesque. And that's yeah, me putting yeah. it lightly. Yeah, I mean, you know, just especially from you know areas we come from, mm. you know, that's that's sort of like, you know, the government sort of ignored. You know, not a lot of funding's been put in there. You know, it's just sort of left to, you know, left to rot and forget about, you know, when you learn about, you know, when you learn about communism, Marxism, you know, what I learned about, it's made me appreciate, you know, why, you know, my city's in the position it is, why the people, you know, the people, the people in my city are in the position they are, you know, why people turn to crime, why people, you know, why people are poor, why I, I used to like, just not understand just sort of have a 
you know a dep- you know a depreciation of why people are in the position they are but you know n- you know now that I've got more knowledge and understand it more you, you sort of realize it's state sponsored mm-hmm. you know it's 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 a lack of you know it's a lack of the state you know imposing whether it's imposing austerity or whether it's just like you know not giving a shit about you know usla or yeah yeah 100% um, 100% man and i want to add as well like how when solutions are proposed to how to alleviate this poverty and the suffering of the poor conservatives and liberals go around saying well how are we going to pay for it well how are we paying like cuz i want to give you an example here that you may not be aware of but bae systems mm. is an arms company that is subsidized by the taxpayer so we are paying right now unfortunately without any choice for the bombs that are being dropped in yemen bae systems is an arms company in london right it's headquarters in london and it's subsidized by the taxpayer where are we getting money to fund this arms company that are currently aiding and abetting the genocide in yemen and helping to facilitate and exacerbate the severity of the world's largest humanitarian crisis where does the money come for that like we forgot like the great tony ben said one of uh, my favorite politicians he said if we have money to kill people we have money to help people tony blair the goat man yeah <laughs> uh no we're not blair at the way but uh... no no tony ben not tony blair jesus christ oh shit ชื่อเลวคือนักเกี่ยวกับเรื่องหลายสิบปีของเราไม่ใช่ดาวคือคนที่เซ็กซ์เหรอใช่ใช่ที่เซ็กซ์ก็เลยเรื่องของเราโท
So, so who are the proles? What is the proletariat? The proletariat is the working class. The 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 prole exists, and the the sole reason the prole exists and how they sustain themselves and their existence is through selling their labor. Uh, me and you are working class kids. Uh, our parents are working class. Most of our friends are working class. Yeah. Uh, and the and the and the bourgeois are the people who own the the means of production they there's only this there's, there's only like two two um say of course you have like the petty bourgeois and yeah they they kind of ex- you know they kind of a thing but really there's only two classes in you know a capitalist society the pro who sell their labor to to the to the bourgeois and um and the and the bourgeoisie the class of the bourgeoisie who own all the means of production and those yeah. are the two main classes in capitalist uh, society basically and yeah um, and I just yeah. want to sorry just want to interject here and just add importantly how class is shaped and how that's determined is how each class relates to the means of production so yeah. the bourgeoisie is if someone would be someone would be considered sorry bourgeois part of the bourgeoisie they own the means of production the proletariat have absolutely no control over the means of production hence why they're they are the proletariat yeah yeah they're propertyless they don't yeah they don't they don't really have a say in in you know how the labor is sold or you know whether it should be sold or not basically and uh, it's important it's important to know about these two classes when you talk about you know the labor theory of value because uh well the way the worker exists the worker exists uh to sell his labor he sells his labor power to the capitalists in order to exchange it for uh for other common commodities so his labor power uh is a commodity he uh, his labor power has been commodified so uh to to like explain it to give an example of that you know i want to go i want to i want to talk about me working in like um I worked in McDonald's when I was much younger and I want to use that as a great example to explain uh you know how how I sold my labor my labor power to you know fucking Mackeys I guess um you know I I got paid like 6 an hour for 8 hours a day you know my my employer bought my labor power you know me working there you know 8 hours a day you know that was my labor power you know me flipping burgers me making the fries you know that that was uh that was my labor power that was a uh, you know my my work day you know i sold it for 8 hours a day and um you know my employer deemed it worth about what 50 quid a day that's how much my labor power was worth and you know through this exchange of of my labor power for money you know which is a commodity in itself you know i'm giving my time you know 8 hours a day uh that in itself is a commodity you know i'm giving one commodity my labor power in exchange for another which is money and um you know i guess you can use this money to like buy whatever you want i bought stupid shit with my money but yeah you can use this money to uh to buy any commodity you want you know so it, you're you're trading one commodity your labor power for another commodity uh you know uh sorry for, uh, for money which you can use to buy uh, all other commodities um so you know marx calls marx calls this the 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 exchange value of uh sorry uh the exchange value of commodities or the exchange value of labor power sorry and um how how I would get paid whether it's 6 pounds an hour or more 
you know, uh, 48 pounds a day, you know, uh, that would be my wage. And wages are the price for my labor power, of my labor power. And, um, you know, to to sort of uh, give, you know, expand on that and give an example, uh, Marx gives the example of a, of a weaver. So, you know, somebody who, who weaves, uh, you know, wool into cloth, you know, but I didn't want to use sort of a dated example. I wanted to use a, you know, a more personal example. You know, a friend's brother, you know, he, he made headboards, let's say. You know, he, he made uh, four headboards a day. It took him two hours to make one, I think. And um, he was paid like uh, seven pounds an hour to make uh, each headboard. It took him like two hours of like, you know, toiling toiling away to, uh, on wood to make the headboards. And... Um, you know, he was paid, yeah, he was paid about seven pounds an hour. And, um, you know, uh, I think I think his employer sold it for like 80 pounds. So four headboards probably sold for like, what, 300 and something. So, you know, he got paid 30 pounds for making four. And uh, the money that he was being paid uh, to sell the headboards, you know, didn't didn't come from the headboards being sold. It, it came from the from the pockets of, of his boss, the capitalist. You know, he gave him the money out of his own pocket, N- not 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 from selling the headboards. You know, he already had the money to give his laborer. You know, he, uh, none of the money he he earns was from his you know was from the labor power he used to make the uh, the commodity, the the headboard. You know, none of that money came from from the selling of the headboard. You know, the capitalist, the the man who pays uh, the laborer his his wage. He, you know, he's not he's not paying him through that. He's paying him through, through through his own pocket essentially, and um, yeah, he's he pays the laborer from the money he already has basically for, from his own pre-existing capital. So the capitalist uses his wealth to to buy the labor power of the worker, just like he uses his wealth to buy the wood, you know, to make the headboard. So in that regard, the laborer has no share of the of the profits he gains from making the headboards. As the capitalist has the wood and has the labor power and uses all of that to make the headboard, so you know in that in that regard, like it's kind of fucked up. But you know the labor is the labor is no more different than the machines. You know that you know that can make the headboards at like a faster rate. So you know he himself is an instrument of labor. He's no different from a machine. And um, yeah, like the labor has no agency in his wage. You know, as a machine wouldn't have any agency in how it's being used. You know, that thirty pounds he earns, you know, he can't really dispute it. He can't really, you know, he he has no agency because you know he's not involved in the profits. You know, he's he's being paid from the pockets of the of the capitalist. So, you know, what does this tell us? It tells us that wages are not a share of the worker in the commodities he produces. You know, he's yeah, he's not he's not being uh, he's not being paid. From from you know how, however many headboards are being sold, even if none of them are being sold, it doesn't matter. He he'll still get paid thirty pounds. Even if a hundred headboards are, uh, get sold, he'll only get paid thirty pounds. So once again, wages are not a share of the workers and the commodities he produces. Wages are pre-existing commodities. The capitalist, you know, money is a commodity. Wages are pre-existing commodities. The capitalist uses to buy the workers' labor power, to buy you know his commodity, his labor power. That's what the that's what the that's what the capitalist uses. So, you know, since labor power itself is a commodity, and uh, well, uh, that's basically the relationship a worker, a laborer has 
to the capitalist to the bourgeois this is the relationship between prole and bourgeois you know the prole sells his labor power to the bourgeois who uh, to to the capitalist you know who who uses his labor power to make you know whether it's headboards whether it's chairs whether you know whatever you know he'll use it and you know uh when the when the laborer makes makes something makes a chair makes a ladder makes you know headboards or whatever he's adding a human element to it um what does marx call it the uh, i forget no no i the, believe it's the process in which the proletariat itself becomes a commodity where that can you know that that can be bought and sold by the bourgeoisie so it's a dehumanizing process Because no, 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 not, not only that. Like, there's a bit of extra value being added to to whatever. Oh, yeah, doing, right. Surplus value. Right, yeah, the surplus value. Because, like we said, he's selling the headboards for like what, eighty quid, sixty quid, seventy mm-hmm. quid. I don't know how much, but he's only getting paid seven, eight, eight pounds per headboard. So, you know, he's 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 only being uh, being paid eight pounds for something that's being sold for sixty, seventy, eighty quid. you know he's adding extra value he's adding extra value to to you know uh you know uh to the wood that you know he essentially made into a headboard you know he's adding extra you know uh surplus value to it but the surplus value doesn't go to him it goes to the to the capitalist basically and uh, th- that's that's what we mean by exploitation you know mm. you, you don't really have yeah you know uh what the heck is it called again uh uh food soviet labor no 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 it's called uh jeez it's called uh, un- uh, unpaid labor actually cuz uh, uh you know that that extra money that he pocketed is because of you mm. but you know it's it's not you know it's not given to you it's being pocketed by the capitalist essentially and uh, you know how how wages come about is kind of even more messed up really when you think about it because um in modern capitalism supply of the workers is always high right you know mm-hmm. this right this vast unemployment now especially in the UK especially in like most developed developed and undeveloped countries there's mass unemployment right but you know this this unemployment doesn't doesn't exist you know naturally it's sort of uh it's sort of by design essentially because unemployment uh, only benefits the benefits the boss benefits the capitalist benefits the bourgeois because it's a manufactured unemployment it doesn't exist naturally since a uh, high unemployment allows capitalists to to uh, put uh, pit workers against uh, against each other you know in competition so capitalists can get away with paying you know workers as little as possible in shitty conditions you know you touched on uh, you know marks uh, you know and and angles and how they saw you know the the conditions of the working class you know it was it was shit then you know cuz they could get away with it you know you don't want to work for me while well, get lost you know i'll i'll get mm-hmm. somebody else to work for me and yeah i'm not going to change the working conditions i'm not going to pay you anymore and we still see it today no no we see yes. it with the poor people you know that's that's always used as a deterrent like oh well if you if you don't do your job you know there's always going to be so, you know some polish dude or whatever to like you know uh you know to to do your job cheaply and better you know not that is you know not that is a blame on the polish people but mm-hmm. it's just you know it's it's a blame on uh you know just the capitalists who exploit them because you know you, you know i'm sure they would like a better wage but you know they can't complain because what's the alternative that not feeding yeah. your family 
you know there is no alternative exactly there, there literally is no alternative and to just interject here sorry i want to further go into this concept that you're describing known as the reserve army of labor for any mm. for our viewers and it just hit me right now actually how that process in itself pits the proletariat amongst one another and prevents any sort of unity and solidarity fermenting because they're in competition with one another to sustain themselves materially and probably quite likely their families as well mm. and like you said you know they can't go to their boss and ask for better pay better working conditions because their boss will turn around saying dude you do realize there's like 30 dudes outside you know metaphorically probably that want your job you know you're really going to do this so like you said unemployment such a concept is manufactured and it's because the government is controlled by the bourgeoisie like they're subjugated to the interests of the ruling class so they they're not going out of their way to alleviate unemployment because why would they when they're you know in bed with the bourgeoisie i mean yeah i mean fear and fear of unemployment forces the worker to remain docile right you know and subservient to the to the will of the capitalist to the will of the boss you know you can't ask for a better wage you can't ask for better competition because sorry not better competition for better conditions because you know the alternative is you get fired if you do something like that and that's a very real thing you know that that happens mm-hmm. and you know this yeah. is going a bit off topic but i want to sort of talk about like you know how racism does play into this because you know oh yeah 100% like you know the the whole polish worker thing you know it's a uh, you know it only ever does benefit the capitalist you know they get they get this double you know they get to, they get their cake and eat it too in that you know they get to blame the polish people they get to blame immigrants you know like oh they're taking away your jobs you know these conservative mm-hmm. you know these conservative uh, bourgeois capitalist people sorry capitalist class they get to blame the the immigrants but at the same time they benefit off of this you know they benefit off of immigrants like you know not demanding you know higher wages cuz you know they'll take what they can get you know yeah, 100% and it is it's it's such a smoke screen now you know in this day and age where you know immigration is blamed for so many for for high unemployment you know you know immigration is blamed for practically everything you know yeah but but really all all, all it does is sort of mask the underlying problem which is capitalism right but you know really this this smoke screen of immigrants of you know this race war this culture war you know it's just to hide the failings of capitalism really cuz yeah capitalism can't sustain itself it's dying you know it's eating yeah. its away and just to look across the pond as an example we're seeing the US empire currently decay and collapse within it you know within its own way when you have someone like Mr Trump just out there you know demonizing immigrants as he does calling mexicans drug dealers rapists and you know that doesn't happen in a vacuum he then no. is another individual subjugated to the interests of the ruling class and someone like trump who in my opinion a symptom of the disease not the not the disease itself just one of the <sighs> symptoms he's perpetuating this idea because why would he tell people oh by the way uh, it's not actually you know one that's the cause of your problems is this thing called capitalism hmm where you wouldn't cuz he's a puppet just like every other US president just like Obama just like Bush too just like you know Bill Clinton yeah mm. mm. subjugated to the interests of the ruling class and their corporate donors like the, so, the people like this within the oil lobby 
yeah i mean i mean i i, I haven't really finished on wages because it gets so much worse when you when you sort of look at like what marx was talking about you know back then is sort of still carrying on now because you know wages sort of fluctuate right you know according mm-hmm. to you know uh according to like okay uh, the, the laws of, of what we've already talked about and it's based on the cost of production of a laborer so what is the cost of production of a laborer so you know uh f- for you nana like uh mm. say uh, chemical engineer i say you do chemical engineering you know mm-hmm. uh, you want to be a chemical engineer but you know the, the cost of production for you is your education is your technical expertise you know um you know to 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 get you to the stage of being a chemical engineer you know you got to get through uni you got to you know you got to sort of do a work experience blah 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 so the cost of production for you as a worker you know is pretty high you know that's why your wage will be high but you know for for i don't know for for me who worked in macis or for you know unskilled laborers simple laborers you know who who don't have the technical expertise who don't have the education you know his jobs don't require any of that you know um they don't get paid they'll never get paid as much as you they'll only get paid the uh, what marks called the minimum wage you know the bare minimum since uh, it takes less time to train you as a worker so your cost of production is so low the less skilled a laborer is the smaller his wages are so um uh, let me let, let me give you a quote from marx actually that uh, that's pretty good uh give me a second let me bring it up so in in the same manner the cost of production of simple simple labor power must include the cost of propagation oh wait no that's the wrong one within the limits these fluctuations are the price of the commodity of the worker labor power will be determined by its uh, cost of production it will be determined by the labor time necessary for, for the production of labor power simply simply put the, the wage is determined by the cost of production of labor power so in essence in industry we just the existence of the worker is necessary so you know like i said working in mcdonald's working in um uh you know working in retail uh working in a factory you know just your existence you know as a machine is just required you know you don't need education or expertise for that so your 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 wage is reduced to only keeping you alive you know to only keeping you alive and well enough to work and yeah. this is what marx sorry uh what did you want to say no 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 i was just agreeing with your point sorry and so this well this is what marx says about it within uh within the limits of these uh uh wait, what the, within the limits of these fluctuations however the price of the commodity of the workers ah uh, no wait sorry in the in the same manner the cost of production of simple labor power must include the cost of propagation uh, by means of which race the, wor- the the race of workers is enabled to multiply itself and to replace worn out workers with new ones the wear and tear of the worker therefore is calculated in the same manner as the wear and tear of the machine so uh you know uh you only pay to basically like you know have kids and you know propagate and to only sustain yourself and you know make a new you know race of workers make you know make kids and make sure you know it ensures like the the supply of cap- capitalism you know the supply of lab- uh, labor is never ending and how you know you know marx illustrates this is to you know talk about a machine is a really really good example but uh say a manufacturer buys buys a you know uh, buys a machine right to uh 
you know, make whatever he wants to make, right? And it cost him a grand, it cost him a thousand, uh, a thousand pounds, right? And he needs to replace it within 10 years. You know, he's gonna know, right, that he needs to replace it in 10 years. So he's, he, uh, you know, he has to add a hundred pounds annually to whatever commodity he uses the machine to, to produce. You know, he's going to add a hundred pounds annually. So in like 10 years, he'll have a thousand pounds and, you know, he'll be able to buy a new machine. And in the same way, you know, simple laborers are sort of created in the same manner, right? You know, you paid this minimum wage, right? So, you know, you can sustain yourself and then, you know, you can propagate later, you know, so, so the, you know, the instrument of labor can still exist. So, so you know um what what is it sorry let me let me give you the code uh the wages are thus uh, determined are called the minimum wages this minimum wage like the, the like the determination of the price of commodities in general by cost of production does not uh, hold good for the single individual but only for the race individual workers indeed millions of workers do not receive enough to be able to exist and to propagate themselves but the wage of the whole working class adjusts themselves within the limits of the fluctuations to this minimum so you know six pounds that i was paid you know if i was paid forever that's not enough to sustain myself you know what i mean like that's mm. you know that's the minimum wage isn't good enough right we've we've always sort of agreed that the minimum wage isn't good enough yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. if it rolls with if it rolls with worker productivity it would currently be 24 pounds an hour in the uk but yeah. it isn't it's like it correct me if i'm wrong somewhere around the eight quid mark which is nowhere yeah, near yeah. enough like you know people say oh that's that's good enough but it really isn't like eight quid an hour isn't good enough i mean yeah i mean it's only eight pounds if you're 25 and over actually so it's yeah, even yeah. one thing i didn't even consider you know consider actually so thank you for bringing that up yeah no i mean yeah i think i think that's that's what that's what's so messed up it's like this this whole you know how much how much you paid really you have to sort of base your whole life around this minimum wage you know it, it it's it's not it's not enough to sustain yourself and to propagate like uh like marx was talking about you know it's you know uh, sorry like the capitalists talk about this this minimum wage you sort of have to adjust your life around you sort of have to like make ends meet with this minimum wage it's not you know it's not enough to sustain yourself and propagate as the capitalists like like you to believe you know so the cost of production of simple laborers is the cost of their existence and propagation, their ability to reproduce. These wages they paid, you know, are the minimum wage, like we said. Yeah. And the and the determination of the price of the cost of production uh, doesn't only hold uh, for one person, but like like Mark said, the entire race of workers. You know, every everybody's basically paid paid this to like keep keep the system as is this minimum wage exactly that's that's my uh that's that's the labor theory value obviously it gets way more complicated it gets way more in depth when you talk about um you know when you talk about supply and demand Mm -hmm. uh, about you know why things are priced the way they are why they are priced the way they are this is just uh why wages are what we're paid, why wages exist, and uh, the relationship of the prole to the bourgeois. I probably haven't done a good job. I'm sorry, but like, yeah, bear with me, guys.
Ah, uh, but this is as best as I could uh, sort of sort of give on the yeah. liberty value. Yeah, no. um, yeah. yeah. I just want to add as well. I thought you did like I'm not just saying this because I'm your comrade, but I thought you did a pretty good job, to be honest. Yo, thank you. You can have yeah. Yeah. I should should I just go on now to explain what is historical materialism, as well oh, as okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so historical materialism. Uh, I just want to start off here with a quote from the Communist Manifesto that Marx and Engels wrote. It says here, "The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles." Right. So, I'm going to expand on that and what's what you know what that means. Historical materialism is Marx and Engels' theory of how human societies develop and how and why they change. Right. So they argue the history of human societies is propelled by the conflict of material interest between the two classes which you spoke about uh, and discussed under the labor theory of value the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. And almost the entire section of the communist manifesto is actually dedicated to this. So to just as well to expand if anyone was lost in what you meant uh, about what what how this how there is a conflict of material interest between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat and say the proletariat work on the farm they don't actually own the farm but they have the tools to work there and you know they theoretically and hopefully they want to produce the best crop yield as possible say the mm-hmm. board who owns the farm the bourgeoisie they you know what they want to achieve through the to these people working on their farm is to keep as much of the crop yield as possible so there you have it this right there as an example is a conflict of material interests because on the one hand you have the proletariat working on the farm but they don't actually own it hence why did the proletariat wanted to keep as much of the yield they produce as possible whilst the lord who owns the land wants to take as much of the yield as possible and historical materialism it starts in the fact that for societies to exist they need to be able to produce things aka the necessities of life like food and shelter and without production there's no society as marxism posits and the things we use to produce things which is what i describe as the means of production would include as i said earlier things like land uh, machinery tools the factories etc etc and how people relate to the means of production gives us their class position in society and with that their objective material interests as i mentioned earlier with the example with the, the farmer and the people that work on his, on his uh, farm <clears throat> and i just want to add and it's very important to note here that this relationship as you probably imagined is antagonistic and it can never be resolved under the current social order like Marx and Engels spoke of this in the communist manifesto and to quote them again they said in reference to the this conflict of material interest that exists between the two classes this was a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes Bro, Boris better stop this man. He better stop trying to. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is kind of weird, but I'm pretty sure at this point we're probably just like bro, prevent. Shit, bro. 
Uh, that is that in itself is a uh, worthy of another episode. Prevent, but to just continue where I left off with, in response to uh, expanding on what's meant by this particular quote: a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large, or in the common ruin of the contending classes. So beyond prior to capitalism, were many different modes of production in term, and these modes of production is how society would organize and govern themselves. So at first you had slavery, in which again there existed hostile antagonistic relationship between the two common classes, the slave masters and the slave. And then from slavery we transitioned to feudalism, where again there existed an antagonistic relationship between lord and serf. And Marx and Engels, they're trying to show how this antagonistic relationship can never be resolved. Hence why communism advocates for a classless society in which the means of production are collectively owned and operated by the proletariat, who as Marx and Engels describe as the agents of political change. But to just dwell further as to why this is not necessarily just an antagonistic relationship, but how historical materialism examines how each mode of production transitions to the next. Within slavery, uh, Marx and Engels describe internal contradictions. So these are internal, why they're called internal contradictions, as you'd imagine, is because they're built into the system. And one of the internal contradictions that they discuss is the fact that the slave master would constantly have to get a new slave once his old one died. And, you know, slaves can't just, you know, there were different ways, like slaves could just reproduce, etc., etc. But the potentiality, which did occur in some places, for example, within antiquity, especially in Greece, where slaves would rise up and revolt. And the likelihood of that occurring was, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd think surprisingly low, given that no one would want to face the consequences. But as Marx and Engels describe and referring to the proletariat, when you have nothing to lose but your chains, and in the case of antiquity, when slavery as a system was how we organize society, uh, that statement both rang true, both, you know, on a, met- on a metaphorical and physical level. So that internal contradiction could never be resolved. The same in a modern context is how under capitalism, like the capitalist is constantly trying to save on, on his labor costs. And that process of saving on his labor costs has given way to globalization, where capital has exported and gone abroad to other places that have been systematically underdeveloped through colonialism, for example, Bangladesh. Um, and it goes there because the capitalist knows they don't have the same laws and regulations that apply to the workplace in in the the global north. For example, there's no right to an eight-hour workday. There's no weekends in terms of the workday, there's no uh, right to unionize and organize and hold general strikes. So this process is constantly trying to save on their labor costs, either by hiring cheap workers in the third world or hiring immigrants or hiring women. You know, the same people that are producing the goods and services, if they're being paid, you know, less and less money, they won't have the money to effectively buy what the capitalists are selling on the market. So, that right there is a process that I've just, I've just described as an internal contradiction mm. because oh, they're saving on labor costs, as you'd imagine, because they're competing against other capitalists and they're trying to make as much money as possible. But at the same time, when, when they're screwing over their workers, paying them as little as possible, you got to remember, these are the same workers that are buying their products. 
And if they ha- don't have the necessary money to buy their products, capitalists who have become successful have in turn killed themselves. Yeah, yeah. That can, you know, that is a big, big internal contradiction. And like Marx and Engels do further expand, say that this class struggle can end in one of two ways. Either the oppressed class, i.e. the proletariat, succeeds in overthrowing the oppressors, i.e. the bourgeoisie, and establishing a new order that advances and enshrines you know, their material interests. Or both competing classes are brought to ruin somehow. And that possibility, that potentiality of both competing classes being brought to ruin is, without sounding too much of a doom as a doomer, is the prospect of the climate catastrophe, which is fast approaching. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah. And that in itself, or just to like summarise, historical materialism is the process in which how human societies develop and change. And Marx and Engels, you know, their theory surrounding historical materialism is that for societies, as I mentioned, for them to exist, they need to be able to produce things. Because Marxism posits where material beings with material needs. And this yeah. idea of how human societies develop and change, according to the Marxist school of thought, is that it's propelled by the conflict of material interests between the classes. These, these two common contending classes that existed under previous modes of production. As I mentioned, in the slavery was slave, master and slave. As I mentioned, the feudalism, it was uh, lord and serf. As I mentioned, the capitalism, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. So, um, yeah, I hope that explains in a very succinct way what is historical materialism. Is there anything uh, you'd like to contribute to? Uh, I, I didn't really... So, when I, when I explained the relationship of the prole and, mm. the, and the bourgeois, I didn't really explain, well, why doesn't the, why doesn't the you know, prole work for somebody? You know, why, you know why, why doesn't he just, you know, have any other option? And... Um, Well, well done for making it to the halfway point of the video. Pretty, pretty tiring to listen to us for, you know, to listen to us talk for like an hour. So, um, you know, on that note, you know, I'm going to play a Raging Against the Machine song, which is pretty relevant to the the next topic that, that's going to be uh, talked about in the second part of the, uh, of the, of the podcast, which is going to be about uh, American... You know, just American stifling of uh, communism and uh, just fascism in general and uh, just a bunch of other things that we're just going to talk about, mostly owning the libs and conservatives. So uh, enjoy.
quite nice. Yeah, man. You you were telling me you're a bit upset that you know you didn't really get to talk about uh you know the the relation of the serf, the prole, and the slave. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I wanted to sort of uh, talk about that. Um, so yeah, this is sort of a you know taken from Marxist.org, and it talks about how the prole differs from the from the serf. The pearl is a commodity that can pass from one hand, uh, from the hand of a, uh, one owner to to the to that of another. He he himself is a commodity, uh, but his uh, sorry, the slave is a commodity that can pass from uh, from the hand of one uh, owner to another. He himself is a commodity, but his labor power is not his commodity. The serf sells only a portion of his labor power. It is not he who receives wages. Uh, it is not uh, he who receives wages from the owner of the land. It is rather the owner of the land who receives a tribute from him. the The serf uh, the serf belongs to the soil, and to the, and to the lord of the soil he brings his fruit. The free labor, on the other hand, sells his very self, and that by fractions. He auctions off 8, 10, 12, 15 hours of his life, one day like the next, to the highest bidder, to the owner of raw materials, tools, and the means of life, i.e. the capitalists, i.e. the bourgeois. The, the labor uh, neither belongs to an owner nor the soil, but 8, 10, 12, 15 hours of his daily life belongs to whomsoever buys them. The worker uh, leaves the capitalist whom he has sold himself as often as he chooses, and the capitalist dis- discharges him as often as he sees fit. As soon as he no longer gets any use or, you know, he doesn't require him anymore. But the worker's only source of income is the sale of his labor, labor power, cannot leave the class, the whole class of buyers, i.e. the capitalist class, unless he gives up his own existence. He does not belong to this or that capital, ca- capitalist, but to the capitalist class as a whole. And this is why you can't really leave the system or, you know, this is why you're sort of, you know, always subjugated to the system. This is what Marx calls wage slavery. And yeah, what do you, you know, what do you think of that? Um, <sighs> I mean, Mar- Marx put it incredibly well in that how he, how he just spoke of the way in which the labor power of a worker is itself a commodity and how he succinctly describes a very like safe to say a really dehumanizing process in which the worker itself has no control of the fruits of his labor and is in turn alienated because I think within a modern context we can really apply the, this concept of alienation how it operates under the workplace um, you know, the vast, not even the vast, the overwhelming majority of people hate their job. And I don't think that is particularly surprising when you go into work and you have no control over what you do, what you produce, and how that's allocated to the capitalist class. That will have a pretty alienating effect and, you know, be pretty psychologically damaging as, you know, as we developed intellectually and mentally as children. Mm. we let's say we drew things we were really proud to show it to our parents for example and you hold mm. it aloft saying look mom I drew this or that and you know they would you know put it on the fridge wall you mm. know and that process of being able to produce within the productive facility and have control over what's produced doesn't exist under capitalism no, no. So it's not surprising why it's so mentally damaging and why under late-stage capitalism, as I've called it, so many people are 
depressed, I think there is a correlation between that process of alienation in the workplace and depression. And I think it's something that needs to be spoken about more. Because I mean, look at, like, sorry, I just want to add just a final note. In modern capitalism, we spend a third of our lives at the workplace and the, police, the people that produce the goods, provide the services, they have absolutely no say. You know, the capitalist enterprises are fundamentally undemocratic. Like, there's no semblance of democracy within capitalism. So it's, it does make me laugh that people actually think that we live under democracy because democracy and capitalism are fundamentally incompatible. We live under the, the dictatorship of the ruling class. Mm. Mm. Especially like when you consider like, you know, you put, you know, you put so much of your life into your workplace, but, you know, your your workplace can just, you know, kick you out the drop of a hat, really. Mm-hmm. You have no, you have no say in this, you know, you sort of, you sort of own a part of your, of your company, of, of wherever you work, you know, you move, you, you know, you move to work there, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a part of your life and you have no control over it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to think that that is the place in which we spend a third of our life and there's no democracy whatsoever. Like a tiny group of people in the modern capitalist enterprises make all the decisions. Like the CEO, board of directors, and uh, major shareholders, if the company has any major shareholders. And the workers who create the wealth. Because what's often propagated, unfortunately, is that the people at the top are the ones that create the wealth. But the people at mm. the bottom are doing that. That's That's not true <laughs> at all. I mean, yeah, I mean, people really genuinely believe trickle-down economics works. And Yeah, and I just want to, like, add to that. Like, if you seriously, in 2020, believe that trickle-down economics works, sorry, how the fuck do you explain the fact that eight people have more wealth than the bottom half of this plant's population, roughly 3.6 billion people? Like, wealth since the end of the 90s has been concentrating concentrated sorry in the hands of a few like eight people dude have more wealth than 3.6 billion people jeff bezos right he has a net worth of 189 billion dollars the international food policy research institute you know they calculated how much it would cost to end world hunger you know how much it will cost to end world hunger 11 billion dollars and this dude this bold lex luther looking motherfucker has $189 billion. And people are like, yeah, bro, he's got, he's got it in his stocks, mate. He's, he's got it in his other assets. Like, shut the fuck up, you cracker. Like, this dude... Yeah. Like, why are you... Like, you know, why are you defending a billionaire? Like, he's not going to toss you off. You know, you do realise this. He's not going to acknowledge your existence. It, it, it just baffles the mind how anyone could defend the billionaire and the system that oppresses them. Like, I mean, to, sorry, to, to, me. to, to touch on exploitation, like, you know, you, you hear it so much time, uh, so many times from like, you know, these, you know, right-wing grifters, like, you know, he earned his money. No, no. Mm-hmm. Apparently he, he works a billion times harder than like, oh, I do. yeah. And yeah, I just want to like add in there, uh, no offense to any of my white comrades out there. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to use the the term cracker, soft and a derogatory term, to, to like, you know, and, like, hate and all white people. 
it's not just white people that defend billionaires, unfortunately. It's, you know, <coughs> that sounded <coughs> wrong, but yeah, it's not, you know, lots of different people defend billionaires for whatever reason. I, w- I wonder who you're talking about, but... Um... <clears throat> yeah, leave that to the imagination. <laughs> we don't need to name them, but I wonder who you're talking about. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just just so you know, if I if I have a will, it will definitely not include me giving a million dollars to Elon Musk, <laughs> aka the dude that benefited yeah. from apartheid and U.S. imperialism. But yeah, he's self-made apparently. And on the topic of Elon Musk, I think it's really important to know how that company Tesla has never in turn made a profit, and it's heavily subsidized and funded by the taxpayer. And yet we have politicians like Reagan calling people suffering you know, calling the most marginalized and exploited communities suffering welfare queens. You know, the real welfare queens are the corporations, you know, like corporations like Tesla. And, you know, this is something really, really important to know. As someone who I, you know, I would like to describe myself as an internationalist because I believe, you know, I'm very interested in global affairs and the politics that, you know, operate in the global south. Tesla's stock skyrocketed after the Bolivian coup. And for those of, you know, for our viewers who are unaware of what the Bolivia coup was, you had democratically elected president, socialist Evo Morales disposed of, and in his place, uh, a fascist Christian fundamentalist dictatorship was imposed. And Bolivia have huge, huge lithium reserves. You know, these, these lithium reserves would be really important for a company like Tesla, who, you know, create car batteries that are made of lithium. And Evo Morales refused to sell out these foreign companies to come in and like a bunch of conquistadors and exploit Bolivia's lithium reserves. And what happened, a mm. uh, CIA coup was sponsored to get rid of Morales and put in a fascist who would allow these conquistadors like Elon Musk to come in and take and exploit Bolivia's lithium. I mean, and this, I this is the dude that's looked up to people like... He's apparently a real-life Tony Stark. He's more akin to that of an inbred feudal lord, but I digress. Yeah, and I mean, like, where do you think this, like, sort of uh, misunderstanding and this fascination that comes like, oh, well, you know, I can be a billionaire, like, you know, Elon Musk mm. is self-made, you know, or Bill Gates is self-made. <laughs> Which know? is fundamentally untrue, fundamentally untrue, especially in the case of someone like Elon Musk. Like, the dude benefited from apartheid, bro. Apartheid, for those that are unaware, is, well, I, I don't mean to sound condescending, I'm sure a lot of people know what apartheid is, but within the context of South Africa, sorry, um, you know, it was institutionalized racism, not just the, the extent that we would see into how police operate through the lens of race here in the UK, but like literally by law, white people had, you know, went to better off schools got a better education in turn than black people that's the level of institutionalized racism we're on about in apartheid south africa when elon's father owned an emerald mine so that's where he got the capital to start off his business right yeah yeah like this dude is not self-made at all and the company has never fucking made a profit as well even though it's you know it's heavily subsidized and you know the taxpayer pays a lot into it hmm I mean, he's a fucking grifter and a charlatan. Like it, it needs to be said. A lot of people are blissfully unaware of that, but he is a grifter and a charlatan. Do you, you know? Do you think billionaires will save us? Like you know, no, this whole no, 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 hundred no. percent not. 
Uh, if the COVID-19 crisis, if anything, has proven that to be demonstrably untrue, that billionaires are not going to be our salvation. Like It's not them that keep a society functioning and operating. It's the people at the bottom, the workers, the cleaners. The, the NHS know, workers who risk their the lives NHS to like, go to work. Risk, exactly, exactly. Like, it's not these fucking billionaires that, you know, are going to save us. Save us from fucking I mean, what exactly? I think we should be, you know, trying to get rid of them. Elon was advocating for open, reopening the economy earlier, for people to get back to work earlier. He was trying this to, like, you know... Said by, like, April, there'd be, like, zero or no cases. And America has, you know, despite the fact that America comprises 4% of the world's population, so it's not a big total, 4%. More than mm. a third of all COVID-19 deaths on a global scale come from America. And, you know, people like, oh, mate, he's not an epidemiologist. Like, you know, carry on sucking him off more. Carry on sucking him off more. I'm sure he'll acknowledge you one day. Not. I mean, you, you've told me many times, like, even these billionaires will tell you that, you know, they're not worth carrying water for. I mean, they're... You know what? Yes. Self-consciousness is good. You know, they are a bunch of sociopaths that need to have their wealth appropriated for them. And I'm not operating here through the politics of envy saying, oh, shit, just because you don't have the money, do like what? What? You know, why do you need so much amount so that amount of money when people are going hungry, when people are starving, people are in poverty and people are like, oh, that, that's not their self-interest. You know, you shouldn't care about this. And this just falls back on why individualism is such a toxic ideology like atomizing us as individuals and this concern over material self-interest as to why, you know, alternative forms of uh, alternative social, they will never work because humans are just, they just have enshrined in them, like biologically, apparently this survival of the fittest mentality and this like social Darwinist outlook. Like, how do you think global That's capitalism social, operates? Social. I, I just, I just want to like, not understand that global cap truly halt and the world. Grow the next dude. Yeah, that you know ends justify the means does operate under capitalism when the capitalist class exploit the proletariat. Yeah, but like, never existed under capitalism. It would literally not function as a system. And we, as a species, are very social. You know, we like to socialize with each other. You know. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I think, I think in general, when you when you look at the exploitative nature of capitalism, it, you know, it just gets worse and worse. You know, especially when you look at the global south and how, like, you know, um, yeah, like every single socialist revolution has just been, you know, stopped and curtailed by, you know, the CIA and who's the CIA funded by, you know, what, what you know. <laughs> Whose self-interest are the CIA serving? You know, clearly not the common people of the, you know. No, no, no. These are the, these, these same organizations that are like closely tied to the U.S. government are, you know, the, they're basically in the interest. They're following the interests because we got to understand as well why these competing social orders like socialism, communism, why they're vilified to the extent that they are, hmm. and it's because. I've answered my own question. They are competing social orders, one that would which use the land, labor, resources, and technology and utilize it in a different way to that of the global capitalist orthodoxy that we are currently enshrined in. They would use it for non-profit public sector development 
and social need communally. And that in turn, you know, if it continues to succeed as it has another every progress socialist experiment, it would spell the end for global capitalism as we know it and that of the ruling class's power. So it's not particularly surprising to vilify to the I mean, yeah, I mean, you look at you look at all the people that, you know, all the Cubans that hate, you know, Castro, they usually like landowners or, you know, you know yeah. people who benefit. Oh, the, yeah. I'm yeah. glad you brought this up, actually. I saw so much funny shit. So this dude's like, yo, uh, my grandfather owned slaves and Castro took them away. I'm like, good, good, you motherfucker. Your grandfather was owning another human being. You know, he dehumanized that other human being who had relatives and family of his own to that of a commodity. It's good Castro took him away. Yeah, I mean, people have such, like, stupid, you know, Americanized, Westernized views of, you know, these communist countries that are for the people, you know, every every social Mm -hmm. benefit, you know, everything me and you enjoy is because of socialism, like, Bro, like, yeah, like the capitalist class did not just one day decide, you know what, mate? I think we've exploited these, you know, the proletariat enough. Let's just give them the NHS. Like, that was something that was fought for and struggled for. Like, if, you know, ideally the capitalist class in the in the UK would still, in, you know, maintain a private health insurance system, which is why the current, bourge- the, you know, the primary bourgeois party in this country, the, the Conservative and Unionist Party, are planning to fucking privatize our NHS. <laughs> Because the NHS is a fucking socialist idea. Yeah. It's a, bro, it's not just a socialist idea. We stole it from the USSR, bro. It's a full-on communist idea, bro. And it's like... Yeah, like... Mm. Go on, sorry. So I just really want to hit home. Like, these weren't just given by the kindness of the capitalist class. You know, not at all. Ideally, they would want what was going on in America, where Big Pharma have, like, control of these drug companies and price gouged disgustingly hurting the most you know the worst off communities oh, you mean like that's 40 percent of which already been uh, privatized is that what you're talking about yeah and that process of privatization has actually been accelerated disgustingly even though we owe such a great debt to the nhs <laughs> even under the covid19 crisis that process of ex- you know privatization has accelerated it's absolutely disgusting, but then again, we're talking about the Conservative Party here. They don't really have a soul. I mean, what what sickens me is like just the lack of class consciousness from you know from from proles like us. Lot. I'm not talking about you or me, but just like you know, like I live in a council house, and like always, like I've you know I've enjoyed the benefits of you know the NHS of like having my you know student loans be subsidized by the government. You know, everything I've enjoyed mm-hmm. is because of socialism. And then people are like, oh, well, you know, if you, you live in a capitalist country, if you like communism so much, move to a communist country. But like every... I mean, motherfucker, I wish I had the money to. I mean, every benefit I've enjoyed, no, no, that's true. Like, I same. Like, I would love to live in China, bro. Like, um, Yeah, 100%. Like, like I said, like, everybody always talks about the benefits of capitalism, but how has it benefited me? You know, I ask these stupid... How has it benefited me, yeah. Yeah, like in I any get... meaningful kind of way. Mm. Sorry, I just wanted you to continue. No, I was gonna say like um, people always talk about like the benefits of capitalism, but like how have I benefited? I get to choose between four different brands of soup. No, no, I guess you know that's yeah, like the innovation of capitalism right there, bro. That's right there. You just you just you're just seeing the innovation of capitalism right there, bro. Brilliant. 
you know, I, I keep on to say like every single, uh, yeah, every single, you know, my entire mode of existence, everything I've enjoyed is because of socialism, whether it's socialized housing, because that's what fucking council housing is, you know, whether it's that, whether it's the NHS, whether it's, you know, my education itself, I wish it was cheaper and it should be cheaper, you know, is because of socialism. Mm. Yeah, we should ideally not have any tuition fees, bro. Mm. Like, education is a right for all, bro. It should be free. People genuinely believe that the unis have a lot of expenses and it should be this much money. Yeah, people have this conception of universities operating as a business. They're not not entirely wrong, to be honest, but you know, just the right to education. That's why I find funny is a lot of these pro-capitalist dudes push the line that capitalism innovates, but like a necessary prerequisite to innovation, innovation is, 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 you know, acquiring an education and under socialism, all stages of education are free. I mean, for example, in Cuba. It is like, it's, it's, it's funny to see that, not funny, but sort of sickening to see the dystopia. You know, there's a game show in, in America where, they they help you pay off your student loan. A game show that that's Fuck like predi- that's predicated a, that's, on that's so depraved. I yeah, it's like I I I just don't understand like what you said. Like how how are you supposed to innovate when you can't afford an education? Well, when you know you have yeah. a crippling student debt that I'm gonna have, that you're gonna have, that every one of these pros that defend capitalism is gonna have to deal with, like. You know how 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 are you supposed to survive in this, you know, in this capitalist economy? Like, have we have they actually thought about it, or are they just are they just like regurgitating propaganda, or regurgitating shit that they heard, you know, without any meaningful like meaningful reading or studying? I think it's important to note the extent to which how propaganda runs within our society, how deeply embedded it is. Like the conservative and liberal ideologists of the media class, they're never gonna talk about alternatives to capitalism or provide a diversification of opinion when it comes to such talks such as like is capitalism really the best system we've got going never i mean we're the great never we're the we're the lies we're the people trying to peddle yeah, this is like or or william and i'm not even a big fan of orwell, Fuck orwell. fucking snitch Fuck orwell. but that's another story yeah Fuck. but like the fact that we're the ones that are the, the charlatans and the snake oil salesmen just really shows the extent to how well propaganda runs within our society. I feel like it's this, like this image of the, like the of you know you know the Reds as like you know power grabbing you know the power grabbing Reds. All they care about is you know power for the sake of power. You know, just yeah, that's that's all it is. Like this fear that communists are just power hungry autocrats who you know who are just. Mm. Making, you know, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? Install fascism, where communism and fascism are sort of aligned. Are the same, yeah. Like they're both the same. They're both perverse, authoritarian, totalitarian ideologies. Like it's just a basic lack of understanding of what communism and fascism is when you make such a statement like that. Like fascism as an ideology is inherently tied to racism, to nationalism. You know, not just nationalism, to extreme forms of nationalism. We're talking about ultra-nationalism here. And, like, communism is about the liberation of the proletariat, both politically and economically. And apparently these are both the same. The same thing. Just just conveniently ignore how communism is fascism's sworn enemy and how communists paid the biggest sacrifice to defeat fascism. 
Why the, why and how they the, fucking hate fascists. But yeah, we, we're both the same, apparently. Well, why the fuck did Hitler hate the Bolsheviks so much? Why did he Why did he fight a two-front war that his entire general, generals were telling him, don't do this, this is bad. But, you know, fascism yeah. and communism are the same thing, yeah. You really, you really believe that, you know, the cognitive dissonance is, is amazing, bro. But, you know, that's what, that's what communism is. And, you know, what irks me is like, it's just the numbers that they'll always like uh, tell you, like, oh, 90 billion yeah. people died under communism. Like, like you said, 100 quadrillion people died under communism. Yeah. Why it's bad. Like the methodology of like where this number comes from. You know, it's never prov- they never provide any sources. They just throw around a bunch of numbers and just try and show how big, you know, you know, to get some big brain points. Like, look at me, Ma. You know, communism killed this amount of people. Like, how many people has, has capitalism killed? How many people on a yearly basis from hunger, disease, poverty? Like, this is the, the violence that liberals are content with. It's the most, it's the violence way in which untold millions of people suffer. And that untold violent number of millions of people that suffer from this, like, grotesque violence is known as capitalism. Like, 20 million people yearly die because of capitalism for a variety of reasons, to name but a few, hunger, disease, poverty. These are all easily preventable solutions, but they're allowed to die because capitalism puts profit before human life. Definitely. It's not profitable for these people to be saved. Definitely. So why should they be allowed to live? Yeah. This is how grave the system is. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on it during our fascism episode, but I, I was going to point out about the, you know, black shirts and reds when I was reading about it, Um, you know, how... Mm. People aren't willing to take responsibility for the fascists. Fascism is basically, you know, capitalism taken to the extreme. But people don't want to accept that. People don't. People just think it's a perverse, you know, it's it's, it's individuals perversing capitalism. You know, like I've, I've I've heard it from a friend of mine that, you know, again, you know, that capitalism is all right in its early stages, but like now, late stage capitalism is is, is what's, you know, it's what's wrong, but. As a system, it can be reformed, and that what what we see now isn't capitalism, just like you know, as it was intended to be. I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, that is probably one of the most awful takes I've ever heard. So I'm going to be completely honest with you. Just just to like break it down, like capitalism does function. You might be surprised for me to hear this. It functions exactly for who is intended for, i.e., the ruling class, mm. like. If they're benefiting right now, that's because capitalism is doing what it does. And if you're worried about how you're going to pay your rent, how you're going to pay your bills, how you're going to sustain yourself materially by getting food, you know what I mean? That's capitalism doing what capitalism does best. Capitalism was worse back in the day, man. There wasn't an eight-hour workday. There wasn't good working conditions. I mean, working conditions could be better, but, the, you know, it was way worse back in the day, man. It was unchecked. And I just want to, like, touch on that aspect of how it can be reformed. Like, it isn't exactly the best system we have and the way in which we organize society, but we can, you know, come to a middle ground and advocate for some form of social democracy. Like, looking at it dialectically, all these social democratic gains that have benefited the working class have been pushed back and, you know, overthrown, dismantled by the capitalist class. Like, just to look, look at a series of these reforms across the ocean, across the pond, sorry. Oh, well, technically ocean, you know, we denote the term pond. We look at America yeah, and New Deal that was passed by FDR. Like, you know, they passed the first minimum wage, uh, Employment Insurance Act. So if you lost your job because of uh, 
the business went bust, the government will pay you. Social Security, federal jobs program, if private companies were unwilling or unable to, you know, hire you, the government will hire you. And they did like 15 million people are employed by the government. And these are great gains that were pushed from the bottom up, not the top down, because it's often attributed to FDR as it's likely because FDR was the one that pushed for the New Deal. But the socialists and communists that were big then, who uh, you know had strong labor movements, they were the ones that fought for these concessions. And they were concessions because after World War II, they were destroyed. There was a massive McCarthyite era you know, that just took hold and that promoted anti-communism to the core. Like, communism's bad. Communism is a sum total of evil. This, that, and the other. And, you know, we had a situation in which a third of the workers were unionized. And now in the US, it's a tenth of all workers are unionized. In fact, labor power is suppressed greatly in the US. So hardly anyone can unionize. Uh, I mean, it speaks to Thatcher's, you know, say, okay, capitalism was reformed and it can work well. Mm. Every time it's, it, it forms are attempted, they get pushed back. Thatcher. Look at the NHS. Thatcher. It's getting privatized right now under our eyes. Look at Thatcher. After World War Two, mm-hmm. you had Clement Attlee establish the first modern welfare state, the NHS, and these great gains that were fought for, for the and benefited the working class so good in such a great way. Sorry, have just been destroyed. So social democracy does not work. Like austerity comes in as well. Like these draconian budget cuts that just destroy social programs and gut the welfare state. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, Thatcher, you know, uh, national, not nationalizing, but privatizing, you know, so much shit, you know, it, it, it speaks to how social democracy just doesn't work, how, you know, reforms don't really, yeah, they don't really work because they're always like pushed back. They're always, um, they're always lobbied against. They're always, you know, as long as money's involved, you know, you know, you're never, you're never going to be able to have any meaningful reform because they're always eventually going to be, you know, whichever, you know, wherever the Overton window is, they're always going to be pushed back. They're always going to be, you know, you know, sort of, uh, yeah, sort of lobbied against. And 100%. Yeah, this is why capitalism can never really work. This is why you need to dismantle the system. This is why centrism can't work, man. This is why there can't be a middle ground. You know, I've heard many people. Yeah, say, I, Sorry, Chief. Centrists are the biggest pussies going. Like it goes without saying. Because at least with a right winger, I know he wants to fuck me over. With the centrists, they put on the impression that they're, you know, they're cool, but like, yeah, fuck you at the same time. Like, make your mind a bitch. Well, centrists are just uneducated. You know, they want they want social reform, but at the same time, they want to keep the existing form of capitalism. I'm gonna be honest. I'm pretty centrists are right wing. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm not afraid to say it. like if you're a centrist, you basically just want the current status quo, but with like minimal, diff, you know structural changes that don't really make any kind of significant difference in working people's lives. No, no. You're just too much of a pussy to not say you're right wing. Absolutely, absolutely. Look at look at our current Labour government. Like no yeah, like our oh, Labour Party, sorry. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. Can we just dedicate the next power I'm gonna do this for to like just shit on the Liberals and the Labour Party? Yeah, no, we need a whole episode to just shit on the Liberals, but actually. Just gonna keep it Keep it short for now, but like the liberals in that party sabotaged Corbyn's chances of winning mm. in 2017 when he was 2,227 votes away from becoming prime minister. Yeah. Like they they are the fucking worst. Yeah, and this ties down to how socialist you know Corbyn was. You know, we've never had somebody as socialist as him. You know, not in my life. Someone has left. Yeah, 
And like what's really beautiful about Jeremy Corbyn was his like principled internationalism, like how he would stand in solidarity with the Palestinians. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we never really seen that in a Labour leader since probably Keir Hardy, who was the founder of the Labour Party and said how, you know, we shouldn't go to World War One to defend colonizers like Belgium, his own words. Mm. And principle internationalism and that commitment to you know the struggle for working people not just in britain but all over the world was truly truly a beautiful thing yeah and uh, i think we've always touched how you know this country can't really you know fully get behind internationalism because you know no 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 i can't yeah it just can't because it has to deal with this imperial past first which it's not willing to do it has to deal with its you know domestic issues of you know of austerity of, of the conservative party and it's you know yeah it's not willing to do that and yeah yeah and that's and that's sort of the the problem we have in this country where we can't have any meaningful social social reform it's just going to get more and more right wing you know Who, who's next after boris you know who, who's going to be the next one is, is it going to be worse <laughs> Probably Michael Gove. So to answer your question, yes. Bruh, Michael fucking Gove. Michael Gove, like the dude has pretty questionable views when it comes to Muslims. Bro, bro, like, bro. Even though everybody, like this is this is again this is another episode we have to discuss. I was gonna say yeah. about yeah about like, Islamophobia. Yeah, this one this one purely has to be communism. But yeah, I I I wanted to tie this whole you know UK aspect to like just just the power of um. Oh, what's his face, bro? What the fuck's his name again? Rupert Murdoch. How he's, you know... Oh, yeah. Yeah, just did such a great job of, like, you know, toning... Not toning down, um, sort of, a, you know, smearing the best socialist candidate we've ever had. You know, it's... it's mm. You know, it is because of him, because he's afraid of, you know, Corbyn socialist policies. And yeah, that, that once again ties down to, like, how capitalism and, you know, propaganda and, you know, mass media, you know, has always sort of been the enemy of you know uh socialist reform and uh, socialism in general you know we can't get mm-hmm. in this country because of you know like how the media exists as an institution to manufacture consent for the status quo fundamentally yeah. and like i think this is it's really i'm really glad that you brought this up because we should really open up a conversation about what free speech is and what it means in my opinion free speech is relative but it's also there's a certain level of naivety that we can attach to free speech absolutists because under a system such as capitalism where, power, where power and resources are concentrated at the hands of the few that same aspect of power being concentrated in the hands of the few applies to those who control the mental means of production mm. i.e. the capitalist class mm. they you know choose what is and isn't a violation of free speech to just like you know to quickly just tie this up because I feel like we're kind of drifting off here but it's important that we make a note of this you look at a figure like norman finkelstein you know someone who was kicked out of his university for speaking against speaking out against the apartheid state of israel Mm. who every time he gives a a lecture is hounded by these apologists for the apartheid state of israel and how he isn't and how he wasn't lopped up as a free you know as an example uh, actual suppression of free speech like the media class did not focus and examine him why because his views were not in tune with that of of the of the consensus of the status quo then we look at someone like fucking you know lob, lobster fetishizer jordan 
Jordan, Jordan fucking Peterson. Peterson. The, the king Jordan of, climate change isn't real fucking Peterson. Jordan and fucking. Him, being, him being a transphobic piece of shit, you know, you have the alt-right media speakers saying, oh my God, SJW cultural Marxists. <gasps> They're threatening this brave Canadian Cultural professor. Marxism. Cultural. What does that even mean, bro? Stupid Kermit the Frog sounding looking motherfucker. Yo, he does like, sound like Kermit the Frog. How is this? This was not an actual example of suppression of free speech. When he was being a piece of shit, he was protested against by other students who were using their free speech. And he was not once condemned by the university, nor was he even fired by the university. But this was locked up as an actual example of what suppression of free speech looks like. I mean, people bemoan cancel culture, bro. People. Sorry, I just want to finish because his views were in tune with the status quo. That's it. That's the only reason he was locked up and given a platform. Mm. When someone like Norman Finkelstein goes out of his way to criticize the fucking genocidal apartheid state of Israel, you know, he isn't hounded by the media class. I mean, he is hounded by the media class. Why? Because his views aren't tuned with the status quo. No. Someone like Peterson can go around saying this, that, or the other. That's not my best Canadian accent, I know, but <laughs> you know, he's given that platform and he's he is platformed. Yes, he is. You can't deny that every fucking person knows who Jordan Peterson is, unfortunately, rather than Norman Finkelstein. But I guess that is just the just how it just really embodies how depraved this world is. I mean Lenin's Lenin uh, Lenin asked, you know, in, in what must be done. Um, so what is to be done is uh, free speech for whom, you know, free speech for whom, like I said, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I, what is what is Peterson really mad about? You know, he, he has a huge platform. Most people know about it, you know. Yeah, his book's a number one bestseller. Like he made a book, like I just wanted to add as well. He made a book about 12 rules for life, but the dude almost died from fucking drug addiction because he didn't follow rules enough well. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you got to clean up your room better. I guess that's the solution to ending all your problems. But, you know, that's not really what I wanted to touch on. I, I just wanted to say, like, you know, how, like, what they what they sort of complaining about. And I, and I feel like even liberals are falling into, liberals especially are falling into this trap. Oh, 100%. Liberals are just as complicit as conservatives. Yeah, this whole free speech issue is like, what, what do you mean? Like, this guy's a transphobe. You know, you, your speech has consequences. You know, do you want no consequences for you, for your speech? Like, that's not what free speech is, bro. You're given a platform. You're allowed to say what you want, but you don't want any consequences following whatever you say. That's not what free speech is, man. That's not what it is. You, you said what you yeah, said. Yeah, the toxicity that emanates from the gaming culture who just, like, feel, obs- you know, just want to feel oppressed. Yeah. It- like, the N-word. Like how how they just don't think you know what I, I might just give it a break you know if I if I think I'm oppressed and uh, I I compare myself my level of oppression to that of a Palestinian mm. Mm. how their brain just does not explode <laughs> when they say something like that because I've actually seen videos on Twitch when they try and like convince that their oppression is that when you know that can be compared I don't know this this free. I really don't. Bro, this free speech bullshit is going to give me, a, you know, an aneurysm when I think about it. It's like, you know, what really is your issue? You know, I, I call it like saying the N-word. You know, that's what Hassan called it. Mm-hmm. You know, the king, you know, the Turkish Chad Hassan Abai. Check him out, bro. But um, he, calls yeah. it, he calls it just, you know, uh, saying the N-word. You know, that's, that's literally just what the free speech amounts to. Just being allowed to say hate speech. And that's not, 
you know that's not that's not really you know constructive you know uh, being being able to oh, criticize yeah. you know uh, Israel being able to criticize just you know um you know the the capitalist system that we're in you know me and nana you know me and you nana we can't you know we can't say we're communist and you know be given you know we can't say we're communist and uh, not be getting shit for it can we you know where is this no yeah 100% we would not be given a platform as well 100% we would not you, you wouldn't see someone like me on bbc news talking about like you know, season the fucking means of production. No, no, and and the people, you know, when you want to criticize Churchill, there's this huge outrage that no, oh, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't do that. You can't you criticize can't, the you can't, you can't criticize Churchill. You know, even though he called Indians the beastly people with a beastly religion, and you know, called Pashtuns an inferior race. That's that's why I want to ask. Where is the free speech then? Like people just want to be like, oh well, you know, it's it's a bad aspect. We don't need to really talk about that. But like, where's free speech? I thought I had the platform to like say what I wanted, just like you have the platform to say you 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 know your hateful rhetoric against trans people, against you know LGBT people, against Muslims. You know you have you have that platform, but I don't seem to have that platform because when I say I'm anti-British, you know I should go back to where I'm came from. I'm anti-American. I'm not anti-American, but you know you're anti-American for for espousing such views, but. You know, if you want to be, if you want to be homophobic, if you want to be anti-LGBT, you know, that's like you said, that's not going against the grain. You know, that's not going against what you know, uh, you know, what the state wants you wants you to say. You know, only yeah. yeah, only 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 when people are outraged about it, which they rightfully should. You know, people are like, oh my god, where is this outrage coming from? This is cancel culture. You know, why am I getting? You know, why am I facing the consequences for my actions, for my words? You know, why can't I just say any any racist, any homophobic, anti, you know, LGBT shit? You know, why can't I say it without consequence? You know, what the fuck is that? Like, free speech is not freedom of consequence. I'm sorry. And like I said, bro, free, free speech is relative. And like you said, we always have to ask, beg the question, free speech for whom exactly? Free speech for whom? Free speech for whom? Like, yeah. Like, the capitalist I'm, class. Sorry, go on, G. No, I was just saying precisely the capitalist class because... It's naive, extremely naive to think that, you know, freedom is free speech, absolutism can be practiced and a genuine free marketplace of ideas can can be organized and, you know, where people can debate ideas based on their merits and a system like capitalism, because if what you're espousing doesn't fall under the status quo, then your views and whatever you're proposing will never be propped up. I'm just sorry. That's a fact. Yeah, where are these? Where are these? You know, free speech you know, activists. You know, who 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 gets? Yeah, why why do we never see? Sorry, n- not just even in the capitalist anti-capitalist perspective, but what is this diversification of opinion when it comes to like issues such as Israel Palestine? Like, why do we not have yeah. someone that supports BDS? Yeah, that's like, that's what I was, that's what I was gonna get to. It's like, where are these free speech activists? You know, who want to bemoan? I just want to add as well. Sorry, just really quickly. Like, it's it's BDS, not BTS. All right. Because often when I say that, because of my Brummy accent, people think it's I'm saying BTS, yeah. okay, the the K-pop group. But no, it's a boy BDS, but it is a, an organization that is trying to is you know it stands for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and it's proposing to impose sanctions on Israel because of its you know just it's terrible practices, such as its human rights abuses. Yeah, and carry on. Uh, Nana's not talking about uh you know the army, the the BTS army, but uh. I, I wanted to sort of uh, 
yeah, uh, what I was trying to say is like these free speech activists that are everywhere, you know, uh, you know, who who come to the, you know, who cape for fucking Peterson whenever he's attacked for, you know, his uh, anti-LGBT rhetoric. You know, how come they're not there for us when we talk when we talk against Churchill, when we talk about Israel Palestine, you know, when when we talk about, you know, when you talk uh, when we talk against racism, you know, you know, where are they? You know, I, I don't see them. You know, I don't see them when when, uh, when we talk about something they're not you know passionate about. You know, when we're going against their self interest, where are these free speech activists, Nana? When uh, when, when we criticize Churchill, when we criticize uh, Israel Palestine, where are they? Nowhere to be seen. Hmm? Nowhere to be seen. Hmm? Nowhere to be seen. F- free speech, but on- only for only for your benefit, right? Only for only for what you uh, believe in, only for you- your right wing bullshit, right? Yeah, free speech for me, but not for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, essentially, exactly, exactly. And just on the topic of cancel culture, because I'm I'm glad you brought it up as well. It's it's pretty interesting to me that the same people who so vehemently oppose cancel culture, you know, have spent the last five years canceling Jeremy Corbyn for his beliefs. Like, isn't the vilification of Jeremy Corbyn by conservative and liberal ideologists of the media class just a prime example of what cancel culture is? Even the supposedly, quote-unquote, left-wing guardian engaged in the smearing of Corbyn, particularly when it came to the the issue of, quote-unquote, anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. But right-wingers are the biggest cancel culture, you know, advocates there is, even though they don't want to pretend, you know, that's not what Yeah, this is just the same, like, kind of stuff that we saw you know political correctness and it's just been reframed as cancel culture and everyone's trying to limit my free speech like people the barry weisses of the world bro who yeah. have like a huge platform and like and work for the fucking new york times yeah they want to they want to sort of you know uh zero in in these like just stupid shit like you know i you know all right fair enough somebody said uh, some racist shit in the past and they're getting flagged for it now okay fair enough that's a bad aspect of cancel culture but these are few and far uh, far between bro there's more serious cases of uh, cancel culture that the right wing engage in that literally like you know affect people's lives bro that you know it you know it is the difference between life and death you know these topics that we talk about but it's not you know we're cancelled for saying these things and nobody, you know, nobody keeps for us. Nobody comes for us, you know. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's stupid bullshit that people want to uh, concentrate on when it comes to cancel culture. Like, oh, you know, this dude got cancelled for saying the N-word 50 years ago. Oh, cancel culture is so, so, so bad. But like, okay, you know, we're not going to talk about Jeremy Corbyn's, you know, getting cancelled. Quote-unquote cancelled, sorry. Yeah, like you had people within his own party saying they would like, they would stab him at the front. Yeah, and like, bro, like, bro fucking cancel culture is like, it's, it's not a thing with the left, man. Like, who have the left canceled that's relevant, you know, that's relevant politically, that, that sort of affects any of us, any of our livelihoods? Nobody, bro. Mm-hmm. Nobody. We don't have that power. You know, what power does the left even have? Nothing. Yeah, no. Like, this, um, like I said, in relation to free speech and how, you know, conservative and liberal ideologists of the media class decide what is and isn't a violation of free speech, this, you know, that in itself produces structural censorship and, like, people on the left not being platformed. Yeah, people genuinely think the, me- the you know, the BBC and the media in general in the UK is left-leaning. Is left-leaning, so much. Like, you know, I'm just going to name a couple of newspapers, The Express, mm. The Sun, 
the the Daily Mail, uh, the yeah. Times, the Spectator, the Telegraph. Yeah, these are all left wing papers, aren't they? Oh my god, it's uh, this this victimology uh, complex that, just, that they have. The Guardian, they're liberals. They're not left wing. Like this is often people try and equate liberals as being left wing, mm. like which is just not true at all. If anyone's done any basic kind of reading, liberals and people on the right have a lot more in common than people on the facts, left have with fucking facts, liberals. Facts, facts, facts. Like, liberalism is such an individualistic ideology. Like if you're left wing, you 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 favor collectivism over individualism. Yeah, man, uh, you, you look at, you know, you look at America and it just gets worse with the New York Times is literally like, it is a right-wing conservative paper, but they want to pretend otherwise, right? You know. Th- and people actually like are complicit in that, sorry, how they call the New York Times left-wing, even though it's been responsible for manufacturing consent for US imperialism Tom abroad. Cotton, Tom like, Cotton. Tom Cotton oh, is a fucking psychopath. Geez. Like, the dude's crazy, dude. It, it cannot be emphasized enough. Tom Cotton is, bro. We're gonna, bro. We're gonna talk about this on another episode. But Tom Cotton is a on another episode. The dude is a prick, and he's a fucking sociopath. Like, there's something wrong with the dude. Bruh, man, man, even has a slave owner name, bro. Tom fucking Cotton, bro. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised yeah. he was mad at black people uh, protesting, bro. I'm, I'm... Yeah, and another fucking sociopath that needs to be called out from the New York Times is Thomas Friedman. Oh, bro. That dude is not well. Oh, fuck Barry Weiss as well, man. She called Shapiro a free speech, uh, free speech warrior or some shit. Or, uh, I don't know. She called him a, some sort of like, what do you call it? Like a Spartacus figure, bro, when it comes to just, uh, free, free speech. Like, Even though he made an entire book dedicated to why pornography is bad. Uh, yeah, it's, it's bad. Kind of weird. I mean, it is bad in its own way. Just weird because I, me and Ben actually agree on something. But <laughs> yeah, if that if that isn't suppression of free speech, because even you know even pornography. But yeah, shout out Zaza. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, shout out to Zaza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it, it's bad, bro. Owning the libs, man. Yeah, this, this guy actually made a career of bullshit. Shout out to Quaid as well. <laughs> That to be, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we covered quite a bit today, man. We actually went. Yeah, we have covered so fucking we, much. Yeah, we kind of went a bit off course, to say the least, in terms of what we were talking about, and what was intended to be talked about. But I think, nevertheless, having said that, this is really important to say. I like I like the spontaneity. I don't I don't yeah I, I don't feel like we should just be limited to talking. I mean, we covered everything. I feel like we, yeah, yeah, we should be allowed to talk about whatever we want at the end, yeah. And what needed to be said needed to be said. We felt a certain way, and you know, we expressed ourselves. You want to see a, you want to see a continuation of Marxism tomorrow, the second part. Are, are we proposing the second part, or what, what's the intention? Right? Oh, I mean, tomorrow I wanted to do fascism. Actually, that'll be such a good topic to cover. It's up to you, man. Uh, are you sure you want to leave it as dialectical and historical materialism, labor theory value? I suppose actually we did cover pretty much everything in terms of alienation, exploitation, but uh, it's up to you. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think part two we can do any other time. We don't have to like uh, do part two straight away. We could do part two, you know, whenever we feel like it. But uh, fascism is something that I mean, you have been looking forward to talk about for so long, and I really wanna, yeah, I really wanna, you know, get that out of the way and talk about it because. 
you know, we have a lot to fucking say, you know, especially in this time. In this political climate as well. And just like on an interpersonal level, we, we've seen people, you know, internalize and become very susceptible to fascistic ideology without even realizing. Yeah, Alan. Yeah, Alan as well. Like, <laughs> poor, poor dude. Yeah, poor dude. We need to. Yeah, you old writer. Um, yeah, I mean, today we even touched on fascism quite a bit. And I, I could tell we were really yeah. willing to talk about it. And that's why I really I mean, we talked about over feelings Ben Shapiro as well who's a prime example of a fascist in the in anywhere apart from the US which is probably a testament to how far right the Overton window has shifted in the US Bruh. for those who are really unaware this is how Ben Shapiro actually talks no no you gotta be like 50 times faster I might, I might speed up the recording you know like yeah this is how Ben Shapiro actually talks like a little bitch yeah I talk really fast and I debate college kids you know I call Andrew Neil left wing bro it's scary how, how good you got his impersonation Dan but uh once again, G, good episode. We'll see you tomorrow, maybe, when we talk about fascism. So see you tomorrow, guys. See you tomorrow, guys. I got handed an Ayn Rand sandwich straight from the can. It tasted so bland. I asked a lass to pass me a glass of Engels' conditions of the working class. Right away they dragged me to the committee to explain my they're gonna see they made a mistake If they'd only let me play my mixtape I'm not partial to the marshal Or the plutocrats in their beaver hats And the fascists have the outfits But I don't care for the outfits What I care about is music And the communists have the And the fact